the song service, the prayer, the opportunity to read a portion from the Word of God, all these things have already been a tremendous opportunity and have made our time together already very worthwhile. So thankful that God has allowed and blessed us with this privilege of studying a part of His Word and to engage in the other aspects of worship. Just as surely as these things have brought us to this point, another aspect approved in the Word of God is, of course, an extended focus on a section of the Word of God. And may I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 13, which is where we'll continue our study in the 1 Corinthian letter this evening. We began back near the beginning of the month of June a study on Sunday evenings of the books of 1 Corinthians and Galatians because those are the books that our Bible Bowl students, also those that are participating in that, are studying. And at this point, though the congregation here does not have one or more teams participating in that, we have found it useful and beneficial to also study along with the other congregations in those books. So I'm hopeful that the study has been helpful to each of us. We are relatively close to the end of the book of 1 Corinthians. We have arrived at chapter 13 this evening. May I suggest to you that one more lesson will draw to a close the 1 Corinthian epistle. We'll cover chapters 15 and 16 next Sunday evening, and then we'll cover the book of Galatians over the few following Sunday evenings after that. With the lesson tonight, we come to this 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Some, in fact, have nicknamed this the love chapter of the New Testament, and for reasons that are relatively obvious to see, isn't it? In fact, of all the chapters in the New Testament, and although love occupies a central position in so many of them, it is in this chapter we find a working definition, an operational one, if you please, of this powerful and mighty subject of love. It is for that reason that tonight I devoted just the whole lesson to this one chapter, because there is so much that might be said, and we even then will be a little on the brief side. But certainly as we give thought to it, how profound, how rich, it calls us to in some cases the highest understandings of all of the New Testament. And with that in mind, we do appreciate these opening thoughts at least. So often in the book of 1 Corinthians we've seen problems and we've seen challenges and difficulties. Things that were in fact abuses in the 1 Corinthian congregation. But now we've noticed in this chapter we find what really is not so negative but rather is so positive. Paul encouraged them to appreciate richly, powerfully, beautifully, and practically the subject of love. And as he did it, of course, by inspiration, he challenges all of us in exactly the same way. These thoughts are just as needful for the Pippin Church of the year 2013 as they were for the Corinthian congregation in the year 58 or 59 or 60, whenever the book was written. Amazing, isn't it, that this subject of love is still one that is so needed Oddly enough, there are some who have taken the subject of love where the New Testament does not take it, and that too has been a problem. That reason challenges us to then understand what is it that Paul teaches about love, and what is it the Holy Spirit taught about it, and what is it that is so still impressively important for us to understand today. After that listing near the middle of that slide, we of course come to this subject of love, which is the subject of the lesson tonight. I've divided the lesson into these various forms, and I thought first we would devote this opening consideration to God and His relationship to love. And so, God is love. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, we have this impressive statement, in fact, a very touching one at that. To say that love is a common theme of the New Testament is a bit of an understatement, isn't it? 
we have the observation that love is so fundamental because it's what God is. That word love occurs some 116 times in the New Testament alone. That word agape, although there was more than one Greek word that represented a thought or kind of love, that word agape is the crescendo, the zenith, the absolute pinnacle of the operational characteristics of love, and it is that word that occurs so often in the New Testament. The thought then that God is love immediately brings us to this text in 1 John 4. In verses 7 and 8 we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. He that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And almost immediately we appreciate so readily the following observations. First, love is of God. So in every form in which it genuinely occurs, one who loves or any consequence of love is a direct manifestation of the being and existence of God. But not only is love of God, the next verse goes on to say, God is love. In the English language, you and I can appreciate the form and structure of a sentence like that one. To say that God is love, God is the subject of that sentence. Is is this verb of being, which is the, the verb, if you please. But then this word love is a predicate adjective. Some might even observe the fact that these two in English are equated one to another. God is love. It's not that He makes it possible. He is it. The discussion then that God is love brings us back to that particular verse where it says, Those who do not love do not know God, for God is love. But on the other hand, all who do love, they both know God and they appreciate the attribute of love, at least in some limited way in which He has defined and presented it. It is interesting, isn't it, that as you and I reflect on the fact that God is love, it immediately brings us to appreciate how do we know that God is love and what has He done that manifests the fact He is love? In many ways, the five chapters of 1 John are an inspired treatise, an inspired thesis, if you please, on the subject of God and His love. First of all, notice chapter 3, verse 16. Same book, 1 John. In that particular passage, we observe the following truth set forth. In this, we perceive the love of God, that God sent His Son for us. When we surround the Lord's table, our mind races back to the scenes of Calvary and our mind races back to his, both His body and His blood, but we see in that a concrete reality, the fact of God's love. He hanged on that cross because God loves me and He loves you. And Jesus, in fact, endured all that was the cross due to His love for us. God is love. Not only do we appreciate that, go over one chapter to 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. Especially we note again that God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation simply means atoning sacrifice. From our knowledge and thought of the Old Testament forward, we understand that there was this sacrifice in that day offered these animals. But now God has offered the one full-time perfect sacrifice for all ages, for all time, for every sin. And His love is what drove Him 
motivated him to make that offering. God is love. So we notice immediately that one observation about love that again you can see on that slide is that it is manifested, it's shown, it's demonstrable. Love is not just a mental, ethereal concept. It's not enough just to say, I love you. Think about our spouse for a moment. If all that your husband or wife ever appreciates relative to your love is the words, then your love isn't very deep. It's very shallow, in fact. Love should be something that our spouse appreciates every day by the way we act, the way we talk, the way we interact one with another, by the things that we do. Love is sacrificial, isn't it? It puts others better than itself. Love, you see, is what leads us to appreciate the grandeur and the great foundation it presents for all that would be the reality of that marriage, isn't it? As we think about the demonstrableness of God's love, again, we can always think about the cross. It's not just a love in thought, it was a love in action, wasn't it? God did something. For God so loved the world, to what end? That He gave His only begotten Son. That text of John 3.16 challenges us to notice that God's love was demonstrated. And so too, your love and mine should also be. That demonstrableness brings us to one of the next observations on that slide. That thought that the Old Testament people, for instance, the children of Israel, they were very special in many ways. But isn't it amazing to reflect on one verse that identifies who they were and the status that they occupied? In Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, we see on that occasion that God, through the writer Moses, through the speaker Moses, had this very touching thing to say to Israel. I set my love on thee, not because you were the most numerous of the people of Israel, the, the most numerous of the people of earth, not because you were the most lovable per se, but I set my love on you because you, in fact, were the one whom I chose to embody in that regard. God, in fact, loved Israel in a very special and unique way, contrasted to the other peoples of earth. But he says that I chose you not because you were the most lovable and not because you deserved it. But I chose you because of the plan that I had in mind. The opportunity that all individuals will be blessed through you. Today, when we then think about the love of God, at least seen in that way, the church again is by minority a very small number on earth. And yet God has chosen us at times not because we were the most lovable, there are times that we still find ourselves separated from God's love. Notice Romans 5. We have in verse number 8 this statement. God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's not that we could say that I deserve that blood of Christ. For of course I was a sinner and so too were you. But yet God commended, He demonstrated, He set forth, He directed love, the very preciousness of the blood of His Son for you and for me, even when we were sinners. Isn't that grand? And doesn't that testify that God had a thought in mind, a very special reality, He wished you and me to be with Him forever, even when we were sinners? God is love has thus shown us that first God's love was demonstrated and it was directed toward those who often did not deserve it. In terms of the blood of Christ, none of us deserve that. 
But yet, in His graciousness and in His love, He directed it our way. It is a thing to be noted then that love is something we can see that's beginning to develop in such a fantastic way. And as shown there in some more verses at the bottom of that slide, we now have come to a bit of a fork in the road. For this is where I noted earlier there are some religious groups and there are many teachings who lift love to a pinnacle that leads it to be almost disobedient in some regards. Love must never be allowed to go that far. For although love is majestic and mighty, and it is that which is God, it does not allow some of the things that the human family has asserted that it allows. For example, love is not a mere vague, fuzzy feeling or emotion. That's not what love is. As we've seen, God is love, and thus it is a demonstrable manifestation of the following. Love, in terms of definition, is this. It seeks the highest regard to that which is its object. Love has as its best interest the highest regard for that which is its object. We think, for instance, of our children. There are times when we do to them what for them is not pleasant, and it's even more unpleasant for us. We punish them. They have done something that is not good. It's something that, in fact, will lead to a greater demise on their part in future days. And so what do we do? We whip them. We punish them. We put them in a timeout. Whatever our form of discipline may be. Why? It's not that we enjoy it. It's because we know that in the eventuality of the matter, it will be better for him or for her. That's one of the things love does. You see, it seeks the highest regard of that which is its object. In marriage, in the other realities of life, that's what love does if it is that love which God has set forth. Our God is a God that helps us appreciate passages like Proverbs 14, verse number 12. Again, love is not merely a feeling. If it is a love of God, it must go deeper than that. For after all, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Jeremiah 17, 9 says it like this, that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And so feelings can lead one astray. Emotional response by itself can lead one into difficulty. But love is something much different than that. As we think about this attribute of love, perhaps it leads us to this set of considerations as well. Love thus begins in any serious consideration of that topic with the very thought of God. And so for a moment, reflect with me on some of the ways that you and I are commanded to exhibit and to demonstrate our love for God. There was an occasion in which Jesus Himself was asked verbatim, What is the greatest commandment? That in fact is recorded in Matthew 22. It's recorded also in Mark chapter 12. Here was a case, a very exact situation in which there was a raging debate in that first century era. We understand well that there are in fact hundreds of commandments in the Old Testament. Those who've taken the liberty to count bring the number to about 625 Old Testament commandments in the law of Moses. 625. In the day of Jesus, there was a rather common point of discussion among the rabbis and even among those that were the so-called scribes and scholars of the day. Of those commandments of the Old Testament law of Moses, which one was the greatest? That certainly is a fair question, I suppose. 
No doubt many of us would point to the Ten Commandments. Well, surely the first ones given there on Mount Sinai to the children of Israel, these, it would seem, occupied a very pivotal and factored position. Commandment 1, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Commandment 2, Thou shalt make no graven images of anything in earth, above the earth, or beneath the earth. Commandment 3, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Commandment 4, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Commandment 5, Honor your father and your mother. Commandment 6, Thou shalt not kill. Commandment 7, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Commandment 8, Thou shalt not steal. Commandment 9, Thou shalt not bear false witness. Commandment 10, Thou shalt not covet. Those indeed sound triumphant. What did Jesus answer? The greatest commandment He quoted not from Exodus 20, but from Deuteronomy 6. We notice in verses 4 and following of that chapter, Jesus said the greatest commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the greatest commandment. The Lord didn't hesitate in the slightest. The greatest commandment to be found anywhere in the law of Moses was the quotation of that which today is still called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus even went one step further. Not only did He answer what was the greatest command, He said the second is like to it, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. In Matthew's rendition of that particular statement and discussion, he quickly identified on this, hang all of the law and the prophets. Love for God and love for one's neighbor. That boils down every reality, every explicit consideration of that law of Moses had a foundation resting on those two premises. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that truly astounding? All of those 625 laws find as the ultimate bedrock on which they at rest it exists the reality of love. You and I notice then that love, the Lord used that, that particular occasion and extended it, of course, to all of us. It wasn't just for them in the Old Testament. When He quoted it there in the answering that law, that's still as meaningful for you and for me as it ever was for them. To love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. Do you and I love God that way? Do we, in fact, have His priority, His will, and His service resting at the absolute top of our list of things to do and to be? That should be the positioning and the opportunity of our very existence, loving God and then loving our neighbor. You recall in Luke, the 10th chapter, that there was this lawyer who, in fact, came to Jesus and said, Good Master, what good things should I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus first stated, keep the commandments. And as he made statement then about loving his neighbor as a part of that, then the lawyer said, trying to justify himself, who is my neighbor? And the Lord then told that which you and I call that parable of the Good Samaritan in which a gentleman was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And as he did, he fell among thieves. And they, of course, mistreated him sorely. And in so doing, they robbed him, beat him, left him half dead there beside the roadway. You would think much to that man's good fortune that a priest came by. But however, we well recall that the priest came, looked upon him, passed by on the other side. Again, you would think to the man's good fortune a Levite came by. 
One more time, the Levite recognized the man's circumstance, passed by on the other side, rendering no aid or help. Then a Samaritan came by. Those, according to John 4 verse 9, that were such that they had no dealings with the Jews. And yet, we notice this man not only had compassion, he rendered tremendous support and comfort and helpfulness. Took the man to an inn, paid for his fare to stay, and even told the gentleman, if there's anything more, I'll pay it when I return. Jesus then asked this question, which of the three showed mercy? The lawyer responded, the one, in fact, who in terms of neighbor had distributed that element in mercy. Jesus said, go and do thou likewise. What a touching and stunning teaching and lesson. We can easily see then that love has advanced to this real point in which it serves to assist in the way that's possible. Those that are in need those who are struggling, those who are in some way less than what you and I can offer by what we, we possess and own. Love again seeks the highest object of that which is its object, the best welfare. In terms of all of that, isn't it interesting that those commandments and forms seemingly are found so often in the latter pages of the New Testament. The love that we have one for another. Jesus said it like this in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. And at that point, how did the Lord finish the verse? The world will understand and appreciate that we are His disciples if we work miracles, we can quote the New Testament. No. He said you'll know by the love that in fact you exhibit one toward another. And in the book of 1 John, that thought is reiterated so many times. We ought to love one another as God has loved us. Jesus said that in John 15, 12, didn't He? And we find again those statements in the New Testament in which we're called upon to add among the Christian graces not only brotherly kindness, which literally means love for the brethren, 2 Peter 1, 6, but the final one in that list is love. Love for each other. Love for God, love for our neighbors, love for the Word. Love is a vital and real part of all that we should be and must be if we are to be Christians. Is it any wonder then this 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians has then devoted a whole chapter to giving thought to the greatness and the practical exposition of love? As you can see near the bottom of that slide, Love provides for us a powerful, guiding approach to things that sometimes can be problematic. 1 Peter 4, 8, for example, helps us see that even when things appear a bit cloudy in terms of knowing what to do, often a thorough appreciation of love as it's taught in the Bible will help us to know what is the best course of action. For all those reasons, perhaps, we begin to notice that we're even to love our enemies. Now that one is certainly a challenge, isn't it? It's easy to love those who love us back. But to love those who hate us, despise us, who take advantage of us, who will stab us in the back if we give them a chance. And yet the Lord in Matthew 5 verses 44 and following. On that occasion He said those that despitefully use you, those in fact that hate you, He said, love them. Love your enemies. Wasn't that embodied in Jesus Himself? Was it embodied in some of the other New Testament noteworthy characters? When Jesus was hanging on that cross in Luke 23, 43, there, in fact, abandoned by all about Him, 
Nails having been driven into his hands and in his feet. He could look on this crowd that was there gathered in so many of them in such hatred. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You and I see also Stephen as he himself was being, had him being put to death with rocks being thrown at him in Acts 7 verses 59 and 60. He too looked up and saw the heavenly Father. His last words were, Father, forgive them. These two are not aware of what they do. Isn't it rather touching to see the kind of attitudes that fill the heart and mind of these two individuals and no doubt countless other Christians of that first century era? Today then to think of love in that regard perhaps brings us to ask. So these general statements so far have been very directive and they have helped us see that love is based upon and is an emanation of God Himself. But suppose we ask the question in a daily practical way, how do I love? And in what way does it show itself? Are there attributes? Are there characteristics that we can say, yes, that is of love? Thankfully, that's the very thing Lucas read a moment ago. In 1 Corinthians 13, the first three verses are somewhat of a strong preamble to that chapter. For we find the powerful teaching that love is the motivating factor for all that is acceptable before the eyes of God. You'll notice in those verses again, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. So that directly is a continuing development of what we studied in the previous Sunday night's lesson. Those spiritual gifts we looked at last Sunday evening, those things like tongues and special knowledge and wisdom, interpretation of tongues and healings and miracles. Paul said, even if I can do those things... If love is not the motivation, if that's not the incentive for why I'm doing it, he said it's nothing. It's empty. It is worthless in terms of counting for anything before God. All of that's found in verses 1, 2, and 3. You'll notice especially in verse number 2, he goes on to say, Suppose I have this great supernatural knowledge... Suppose I have this strong capability of supernatural wisdom and understanding. If love is not the reason I use it, if love is not the motivation for why I do what I do with it, then it doesn't benefit me a thing. Look at verse 3. Suppose I go so far in such sacrificial commitment that I pour fuel on myself and set my body afire in the name of God. If love is not the motivating reason for why anything, including that, is done, it profits me nothing. And yet we know today in the far eastern part of the world there are still those who really go so far as to do that. They strap a bomb to their chest or they pour flammable liquids on them and set themselves afire and think that they in fact are bringing glory and homage to a God of some sort. Such nonsense. For we notice here that unless love is the heartfelt and recognition of what's revealed in the Bible, the motivation for any such activity, whatever it be, Paul says it profits me nothing. It is with that in mind that he begins this inspired operational definition. Beginning in verse number 4. Love suffers long. The King James Version uses this word charity. But remember, that's the development, that's the identification of that Greek word agape. Charity suffereth long. That phrase, suffereth long, has to do with the thought of patience. The thought of perseverance. So one of the things that love does is it's patient. 
Love doesn't race and rage too quickly with regard to something. It, in terms of recognizing its object, is patient. That's important in relationships very much, isn't it? Be it a marriage relationship or otherwise, to understand how significant patience is. An enduring and perseverant quality as is identified in that statement. In James 1 verses 19 and 20, we notice there, beloved, as we give thought to the character of not doing some things and doing others, he said, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. That wrath that you and I perhaps have witnessed in the lives of others, they rage to a point where their temper brings them to do that which love would not. May we strive then to be patient as we exhibit love, but Paul goes on to say this, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Love is kind. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul on that occasion wrote, Be kind one to another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. May you and I never forget the fact God forgave us. And according to Matthew chapter 6, if He is to continue that forgiveness, we must be forgiving toward others who themselves have acted toward us in an unpleasant and sinful way. May we always thus continue to be kind. May we strive to appreciate that that which makes a man to be desired is his kindness to quote Proverbs 19, verses 14 and following. Kindness, thus, and patience, two grand properties of love, but let's look further. We notice that love not only is patient and it's kind, he says it doesn't envy. One of the things love does not do is act in an envious way of anybody or anything else. Love does not operate that way. Love recognizes that envy is not a basis for sound action. Love, rather envy, is said to be the rottenness of the bones in Proverbs 14.30. That which is putrid, decaying, rotten. But rather love is just the opposite. Love does not envy. And yet so much it seems in our world is prompted by and pursues this matter of envy as its basis, but love does not. You'll notice also in verse 4, in addition to these three is added, love vaunteth not itself. That's another one of those words that in modern English we rarely, if ever, use. Vaunteth. You'll notice on the list that word has relation to braggadocio characteristics. A braggart. One who boasts of oneself. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't have to have the top dog, the preeminence if you please. It understands that there's something finer and richer than that. So, love is patient, it's kind, it is not based on envy. It doesn't go by way of bragging. How often does the New Testament encourage humility of us? We see that embodied in the next one as well. After saying love or charity vaunteth not itself, it's not puffed up. Closing statement of verse number 4. This phrase, to not be puffed up, means arrogance. Love is not one that's overtly prideful. It doesn't base its reality, its behavior on that which is arrogant. There are those we know in our world who seem to clamor for that kind of thing. Unless they're the one mentioned, unless they have the notoriety, unless they are the one of preeminence, they are not interested. They, as the old saying goes, will take their toys and go home. 
But love doesn't behave that way, does it? You'll notice that the next verse begins in verse number 5. Love doth not behave itself unseemly. The actual Greek rendering is, as I've indicated, it doesn't act in a disgraceful. It doesn't act in a form or a fashion that's unbecoming or improper. Love in public or in private seeks to behave itself in that way that's becoming of the circumstance, that is fitting to the situation. Love, you see, is just the, or rather these kind of behavior that we sometimes see is just the opposite. It acts disgracefully. It acts improperly, inappropriately. It acts in a way that brings shame and reproach upon those who are its object. Love does not do that. The next one mentioned in verse 5, it seeketh not her own. Love, as we've already learned, isn't based upon arrogance or prideful characteristic, but rather we notice here extended brings it to, again, love does not seek its own. That literally means from the original language it doesn't insist on its own way. It recognizes others may have a better idea. Someone else may have a keener insight. Someone else may have a far superior method of approach. Love doesn't demand its own way. It again seeks the best regard toward the circumstance or situation, including that which is its object. That kind of sweetness takes us time and again back to the cross, doesn't it? If the Lord had sought His best interest, personally, He would never have gone to the cross. But rather, in your best interest and mine, not seeking His own way, He did that which was in your best interest and mine. In addition to these, Paul isn't finished. He goes on to make these observations. Love is not easily provoked. That statement is not easily provoked means it doesn't rush to impropriety. It isn't given to quick-tempered rashness. How often do we see a need for that in our modern world? Perhaps even in those whom we associate with day by day. For so often there are those who are given to such quick responses and often it leads to such sadness. It leads to such impropriety. You'll notice as he's identified these things, up next, verse number 5, Love thinketh no evil. Isn't that profound? Love thinketh no evil. It doesn't hold in mind, in memory, in reality, that which is negative. That too can be challenging, can it? When someone has acted in some way toward you and me, it's hard to forget, and perhaps we never will do that. But to then, even upon their asking for forgiveness, even upon their beseeching us with a change of heart and mind, we're told that we ought not to think upon what has been the past, but to give an opportunity for that which can be a future. Love thinketh no evil. How often do we again see the difficulties that might come, and yet as the embodiment of love is before us, that's a part of it, isn't it? The next one in Paul's inspired list, verse number 6, love rejoices not in iniquity. Where does love find its excitement? Where does love find that for which it finds its greatest pleasure? It's not in iniquity. Genuine love, as the New Testament has set it forth, does not base its happiness on what's evil. It rather rejoices, as the next one will tell us, in what's true. We immediately notice then that love doesn't rejoice on what might have been. It doesn't rejoice on what could be. It finds its rejoice on what is truthful. 
again, as these things and the characteristics of the New Testament characters bring us to appreciate that, how sweet it is to remember Christ and Paul and others whose love was manifested in that which they regarded as true and that which the Bible informed them was true. The truth is something in which we find this matter of rejoicing. That does bring us to verse 7, maybe one of the most well-known descriptive verses of this text. Love beareth all things. That verb to bear, it has behind it the idea of enduring. Love can find its way to make its way through hardship and unpleasantness and difficulty, recognizing that a betterment can in fact exist beyond. You and I have seen that so often, haven't we? A loved one is ill and sick, and yet we notice loved ones are there by their side even when it's far from convenient, even when the difficulties are enormous, and yet the love as it, as it is exhibited brings that reality to, to in fact be the case. We also notice in verse 7, love believes all things. Love has the capability to hear and to see and to appreciate this powerful reality of faith. The matter which describes here is belief. That seems to suggest that love as it's identified here is not overtly suspicious. In other words, it has a concrete understanding that this love as it's identified in the Holy Scriptures, that love which is of God, that love which is God, is a love that again is based on the truth, that which is observed. It's not overtly suspicious of what could be or might have been. You'll notice the last two, love hopes all things. Hope is so strong. It can allow a thing, a person to in fact endure when seemingly nothing else would permit it. Because it can in fact appreciate what is the real state of affairs for that, for that individual. Love is hopeful. Later we'll see in, the ver in verse 13 that there are three great things, faith, love, and hope. So hope is categorized and listed in terms of these three great things. And we notice here in verse number 7 to finish it, love endures all things. In family situations, in the church, personally, love has a perseverant, persistent, enduring quality. That leads Paul to say in verse number 8, love never fails. Love never fails. He quickly makes a contrast. Knowledge is going to pass away. Tongues is going to cease. Prophecy will no longer be as it now is. Those other spiritual gifts that he's already identified and spoke of at length, they are going to pass away into oblivion. They are not a part of God's continuing existence for the reality of the human family. They won't last. But yet love is the more excellent way. And he said, where there is now faith and hope and love, the greatest of these is love. No wonder love's greatness is to be seen. And no wonder those statements we've hinted at between verses 8 and 13. Paul, of course, stated what you and I have read so often. He said, I see now the following realization. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now we see through a glass dimly, darkly, as the King James reads it. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. The word perfect is in the neuter. 
In other words, he wasn't referring to a man. The perfect thing to which he referred was the Holy Scriptures. When the Word of God was thoroughly and finally completed into its canonized form, identifying the grandeur and the greatness of love as we've studied it tonight, then all these things relative to the spiritual gifts were to pass away. They were not to be permanent. And so today, we don't have those other miraculous spiritual gifts. The gift we have is prompted by love. And that's the guiding thing, love for God, love for the Word, love for one another. That's the matter that's spoken of and lifted to its highest crescendo in the remainder of the New Testament. And that's the part of your life and mine. As we draw this lesson to its conclusion this evening, having looked briefly at these characteristics of love, we have found that we can, of course, appreciate them in the following way. Love never fails. That love that God has for the human family, it is so persistent and long-lasting. And our love should be the same for Him. Our love for one another, our love for the truth of the Word of God. What about your life and mine this evening? Is it prompted by this love of which we've spoken? Or is it prompted by something that's far, far less useful like enviousness or jealousy? Is it prompted by some other thing? Remember, Paul said love does not behave like that. Don't you want to be a person guided and prompted by the love of which we've spoken? If we could be of assistance or help in any way for anyone in the audience, the plan of salvation is that means by which you and I can come to know in fullness the love of God because it's in Christ where that love is found. To be a Christian, you and I are commanded, any individual, to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, to repent of our sins, to confess His name as the Son of God, and to be baptized. If you've done that, have known for a while at least the greatness of God's love, but you have walked away from it. You've based your love now or your attribute of life on something else. Why not come back to that first love tonight? That statement in Revelation 2 says that church in Ephesus had left its first love. If you've left your first love tonight, you could come back to it. God is still waiting, but His patience, of course, on the day of your death or upon the day of Christ's return, His patience will have been exhausted. This very night, if you need to respond, won't you do it? Even at once, while together we stand and while we sing.